Center Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you have decided to worship with us this morning. And here at Center Church, we want to be a deep church and a wide church. We both want to reach as many people in our community as possible for Jesus and help as many of those people as possible grow deeply as resilient and all of life disciples. Our desire at Center Church is to be both deep and wide, to follow in the faithful footsteps of churches throughout history who have prioritized both aspects of what it means to be a church. If you've been around Center Church for a while, you likely know about a lot of the wide ministries of our church. We do Fall Fest, we have Mercy Partnership, the list goes on and on, but you might not hear about as many of the deep things. Uh, One of the ways that we help people grow deeply as disciples here at Center Church is through something that we call the Discipleship Intensive. All right, the Intensive is a year-long program in which this year about 30 men and women meet monthly to discuss assigned reading on theological topics or discipleship topics and apply it to their lives. Uh, One of the uh, people that went through the Discipleship Intensive last year sent me a message this week and uh, he said this, the Discipleship Intensive deepened my understanding of core aspects of living as a disciple of Christ by diving into topics such as prayer, scripture, and a few other hot topics in today's culture. It also provided the opportunity to evaluate these areas in my own life and elevated my confidence in leading others in my circles toward deeper relationship with Christ. We know that as a church, if we are going to be healthy and fruitful, we're gonna be a church that's made up of healthy and fruitful disciples. And so there are a number of different ways we do this and move toward this at Center Church, but the discipleship intensive is one exciting way that God is leading us to depth of discipleship here at Center Church. So I would love just to start uh, the sermon off today by inviting you to pray with me that God would help us see this vision come to pass of being a deep church and a wide church. Let's pray. Father, we see in the scriptures the call to grow deeply as disciples as well as to reach many people for Jesus. We pray that you would give us grace and favor to be able to accomplish the purpose that you have for us. We wanna reach many people for you, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and pointing people to repentance and faith, the only hope that, is, uh, that we can find which comes through Jesus. We also ask that you would help us to grow deeply as disciples. We pray that you would help us to put down deep roots into your word and to trust your promises. And that would lead us to bear fruit now and for years and years to come. Lord, bless us. Make your face shine upon us as we seek to honor you in these ways as a church. Amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday, uh, we started in a new sermon series, Walking Through the Life of Jacob. All right, this section of Genesis where we see Jacob's life goes from about Genesis 25 to 35 until the story is handed off to one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. And just a heads up, this section of the Bible is pretty messy. Jacob is not a good dude, and you are going to be surprised by a number of the different ways that he behaves, especially when you realize that this is the guy that Israel is named after. Like a spoiler alert, he gets his name changed to Israel. This is the founder of God's people in the Old Testament, and he is going to be acting in some pretty shady ways. But like other messy, broken, sinful characters in the Bible, this is actually very good news for us this morning because if we are honest with ourselves, we do some shady stuff too. And if there is hope for him and God can use him, then that means there's hope for us and God can use us. 
what we have today in Genesis 27 is a picture of a massively dysfunctional family. The family is full of secrets, deception, conniving, lack of trust and manipulation, and it actually ends in a devastating estrangement. They do not trust God and it brings pain into their lives. And if you're a note taker today, here's the main idea. You can write this down. When we don't trust God, we bring pain into our lives and the lives of those around us. All right, when we don't trust God, we actually invite pain into our lives and the lives of those around us. And as you can tell so far, this story that we're reading today is actually quite the downer. Uh, welcome to Center Church. Uh, we come across these kinds of stories in the Bible because the Bible is an honest book, maybe the most honest book. It gives us a realistic picture of ourselves and the world around us. And that picture is not always so pretty, but there is hope. After we get through the brokenness of this story, we'll actually get to see a clearer picture of the good God who stands over it all. So pick up with me in verse one, chapter 27. This is how the story starts. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and Esau answered him, here I am. Uh, Isaac said back to him, the dad, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapon, your quiver and your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. All right, it's been about 40 years since Jacob and Esau were born. We saw that last week. So these two brothers, these twins are grown men at this point and Isaac, their dad is getting really old, close to death. And in these verses, we see a couple of issues start to surface. All right, first, we've got favoritism. Favoritism. Isaac does not even try to hide or disguise his favoritism of Esau. He loves the man's man, the hunter, the tough guy. He calls Esau my son, and in just a few verses, we will see Rebecca call Jacob, the other twin, my son. The parents clearly have favorites. We don't have a ton of time to jump into parenting theory here, but a quick question for everyone, and I'm gonna need some crowd participation here. Is it good for parents to have favorites and show favoritism with their kids? Nailed it, you got it. No, it is not a good idea. It leads to brokenness and hurt, so resist the urge to show favoritism. But favoritism in this family is uh, just the first issue. The second issue that we see in these verses is actually far bigger than parenting favoritism. It's this, Isaac does not trust God. All right, Isaac does not trust God. Well, how do we see that? Isaac tries to sneak the blessing to his favorite son, Esau, rather than giving it to the son that God, that God said should have the blessing, Jacob. Right, God said, if you remember from last week to the family years earlier, the older shall serve the younger. That's Genesis 25, 23. The older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. Esau will serve Jacob. That's God's words. Last week, we saw Esau sell his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And the birthright was this special position traditionally given to the firstborn son to receive double inheritance to everyone else. The blessing, which is coming at the end of Isaac's life, reaffirms this birthright, which makes it vitally important. But more than that, it also carries a prophetic and spiritual weight into the future. So to receive the blessing from Isaac was to, for a dad to make you the boss in the next generation. This was a wealthy family, so this was a big deal. 
And because of its significance, this was often done in public, right? We see that today with a will from a wealthy estate when a family member passes away. Uh, the will is often read in public, right? It's not just one family member who goes to the will, reads it and says, hey, don't worry about it. She left all that she has to me, brothers, sisters, cousins. Don't look at the will, don't worry about it. The will is read in public so that everybody can verify and follow what the will said. In the same way in the scriptures, we see the blessing passed on in public in front of other people, but that's not what happened here. Isaac is trying to sneak this blessing to Esau, his favorite in private. He wants Esau to lead the family into the next generation, but he knows that's not what God said. And it is also not what his wife, Rebecca, wants or what Jacob, his other son, wants. All right, Isaac knew God's word. Isaac knew God's promise, but he did not want it. He did not trust God, so he tried to sneak the blessing to his favorite son, Esau. All right, verse five, let's pick back up. Now, Rebekah was listening, eavesdropping, listening in when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt game uh, and bring it back in, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, Jacob, obey my voice as I command you. Right, this, again, is a dysfunctional family. First of all, Rebecca even knows that she needs to be eavesdropping, right? She's listening in on the conversation. She knows something is going down. She gets the scoop on Isaac's plan to sneak this blessing to the older son. So what does this matriarch of God's chosen people do? Does she go to Isaac to remind him of God's promise and encourage him to walk by faith? Does she encourage Jacob, her son, to go to have a needed and candid conversation with his dad and his brother? Does she go to God in prayer to express her desire for her family to walk by faith and not by sight? Nope, she doesn't do any of this. Instead, she hatches a plan of deception. She wants to make sure her favorite gets the blessing. She tells Jacob, go get the food so I can prepare your dad's food like he loves. She says, I'll prepare it, then you take attempts to eat so that he thinks you are Esau and accidentally gives you the blessing. Let's steal this thing back while they're going to take it. But here in the story, you'll see that Jacob balks. He has some issues with this plan. He says, we can give him the food. We can trick him in every way because he is old and blind and has no idea what's going on. We can trick him into giving me the blessing, except I'm smooth and Esau is hairy, right? Dad might pick up on the trick. In verse 12, Jacob says, perhaps I will seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself. And we need to pause here real quick. Is Jacob worried about doing the wrong thing or is he worried about the consequences of getting caught? He's worried about the consequences. Does he hate sin or does he just hate the consequences? The truth is that God desires more for us than just avoiding sin for fear of the consequences. He desires our new hearts to hate what is wrong and love what is good. The goal of Christianity is not just begrudgingly doing what God tells you to do. The goal of Christianity is transformed loves because of what Jesus has done in our lives. And you see what's happening here, right? We've all done it. Jacob actually cares more about his reputation than his character. Right? He cares more about his reputation than his character. Your character is what you are, while your reputation is what others think you are. Your character is what you do when no one else is around. It's what you do and how you act when you're on a business trip or at a bachelorette party with people who don't know you go to church. That's your character. It's what you really are. On the other hand, your reputation is what others think you are. It's perception. 
It's all about outward appearances. It's all about keeping others happy with you or thinking highly of you. And Jacob, just often as we do, is not worried about doing the right thing, but he wants to manage his reputation. But God, he calls us to work on our character and entrust to him our reputation, right? We don't try to sneak, control, deceive, but we just do the right thing, trust God and let him deal with the rest. One clear sign of spiritual growth and health in your life is focusing on cultivating a godly character before the Lord rather than giving in to the temptation of managing your reputation. So look at the next few verses in your Bible. Verses 14 to 17 is where we've gotten to at this point in the story. Jacob is worried about the potential hit to his reputation if he gets caught, but he's not too worried, right? His mom goes to him and says, pretty much, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, and Jacob concedes. While Esau is out hunting, Jacob and Rebekah put their heist plan into action, and this is the music montage part of the heist movies. They spring into action, Jacob gets the goats for Rebekah to prepare, Rebekah grabs some of Esau's clothes for Jacob uh, to wear, and then this is how hairy Esau must be. They actually get the skins of some young goats to put on Jacob's hands like gloves. And here I have a little bit of resentment that the hairy guy is the bad guy because I am well covered with hair as well. Uh, you can ask my wife about that, but it is, it's just going, going out of everywhere. So I resent that the hairy guy is the bad guy. It doesn't have anything to do with it. But for better or worse, they are in sin prep mode. All right, they're in sin preparation mode. At this point, they can still walk it back. They don't have to follow through with this before they make a decision with real and lasting consequences. And you might be there today. There might be some way in your life right now that you are in sin prep mode. Maybe you've been thinking, starting to tell stories, set up a different uh, opportunity to step into sin that's gonna have real consequences. And if you are at this point, there is still an opportunity to pull back. There's an opportunity to say no. There's an opportunity to trust God. This little section of preparation for sin and deception wraps up with these words in verse 17. And she, Rebecca, put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Rebecca is putting dishonesty, conniving, and lies into the hands of her son. And this begs a simple but powerful question for us parents. It's what are you putting into your kids' hands? Right, we want our kids to be better than us because of us. So what are you putting into your kids' hands? How are you setting them up to love and obey God? Or are you putting other things into your kids' hands? Have you made good secondary things like education and social adjustment and sports primary things and you're not giving them God's word and love and obedience to him because it's just crowded out by so many other good but, but secondary things? What are you putting into your, God's, or into your kids' hands? God has given us parents the, the blessing and the responsibility of raising our kids to love and obey him, but I worry so many times that we let other good things get in the way of the most important thing. Right, Rebecca put lies into her kids' hands. What are you putting into your kids' hands? In verses 18 through 25, finally, they are ready to pull off a fast one on old blind dad. Right, Jacob, dressed in this ridiculous and furry costume, goes to his aging dad to steal the blessing. And to pull this off, he actually lies right to his dad's face three times. First, he says, Jacob says, I am Esau. Not true. Second, he says, God granted me success in the hunt. There was no hunt. And third, he says, I am really Esau. 
Jacob lies to his helpless and his blind dad three times. And in one of those, you see Jacob actually invokes the name of God to bolster his lie. Throughout this conversation, uh, we see another uh, pointer to how dysfunctional this family is. Isaac remains unconvinced. (laughs) That's why Jacob had to lie three times. Isaac thinks something is up. This family is so dysfunctional that lies are expected and everything must be investigated. Nothing can be taken at face value. Even after the three lies, Isaac is still not convinced and he wants to check that this really is his son Esau one more way. So Isaac says, Bring the food near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac, checking one last time, said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him, right? Good thing that Jacob is a good liar or he would have been caught right here. But he put on the garments, he covered his hands. After Isaac smelled this smell, what he thought was Isaac, what he thought was Esau, Isaac is finally duped. And it's at this point that he blesses Jacob, thinking that he is blessing his favorite son, Esau. And the blessing, it is a good one. Jacob will have abundance of possessions and wealth, authority over people and nations. He will have brothers who bow down to him. And then the broadest blessing of all is the last one. Uh, uh, Isaac tells Jacob that anyone who curses you will be cursed and anyone who blesses you will be blessed, right? The deed is done. And what I wanna do now is just summarize very plainly for you what we have just seen happen. All right, we've got Jacob, the one after whom the people of God will be named. Don't forget, this is Israel, this is that guy. He is in cahoots with his mother. He goes to his dying and blind father and he commits elder fraud and steals the family inheritance. All right, Jacob stole the blessing by lying. Jacob stole the blessing by lying. And lying is a huge problem throughout the Bible. It's a huge problem for humans. It's a huge problem for me. Satan is actually called the father of lies and the fall of mankind comes about when the serpent lies about God's character and deceives Adam and Eve. Throughout the Bible, we see God condemn lying again and again and again. There are actually dozens of scriptures like Proverbs 20, 12, 22, which says this, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Right, today, lying seems just about as normal as breathing. <laughs> Every person lies, and a recent study showed that the average person lies at least four times a day, and I think that means there's a very high bar that they're calculating lying with. Uh, the, this lying can be big ones with massive consequences, like Jacob, or it could just be shading the truth to make yourself sound better. And you may not have told a lie quite like Jacob, or you may have, I, I don't know, where you've been, I know I have told big, bad lies and faced painful consequences because of them, Uh, but we all lie in one way or another. What are a few of the motivations for our lying? Maybe we uh, lie to emphasize success and minimize failure, right? The the pool in me that is to round up our attendance numbers to other pastors when they ask so I can look good emphasizing my success. Maybe you lie to keep others happy with you, people-pleasing. We tell them we'll have the work done by Friday even though we know we won't because right in the moment we just want them to think highly of us and be happy with us. Maybe you lie because you made a mistake and don't want to face the consequences, right? It's easier to hide that sin than confess it because it will really hurt my wife. Or maybe you lie, ironically, to get the moral high ground, 
right? I overemphasize what I did with the kids and the chores I completed to my spouse uh, to make sure that uh, she's happy and knows that she owes me later and she's gonna take care of the next round of chores, right? Why is lying? Why is lying so natural for us? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a draw for us? Why do we do it? Well, I think it's this, all right? Lies promise control, all right? Lies promise control. Through a lie, we can avoid consequences. We can manage our reputation. We can make life just a little bit easier and we can get ahead faster. But what you need to know is this, lies lie. They don't actually give you control. C.S. Lewis uh, said this, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. It doesn't take long before everyone knows. Whether it is on this day, whether it's the last day, our lies will come to the light and all we are doing when we lie is making the problem a little bit bigger a little bit later. Jacob stole the blessing by lying and we do the same today. On the other hand, honest speech is a mark of discipleship to Jesus. Right, speaking with truthfulness and honesty um, overflows from trust in God. Right? Honest speech represents this. I don't know how I'm gonna get what I want out of the situation that I'm in, but I trust God, I will be honest, and I will trust whatever God works out. Right? Honesty is an issue of our trust in God. It's an issue of our discipleship to Jesus. Honesty is a mark of the people of God who trust his sovereign hand more than they trust their cunning words. Honesty is a mark of those who are like Jesus, who is called the truth. Jacob lied. Jacob got what he wanted. Jacob got out of Dodge quickly. And just moments after Jacob leaves, Esau walks in with the food that he hunted and prepared. Verse 31, Esau said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. One of the things we don't often consider when we are scheming to get ahead is the impact of our dishonesty toward others. When we scheme to get ahead at work, when we lie and deceive, the spot that we take keeps someone else back. Jacob did not just get a blessing, but he stole Esau's. Verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I've given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. The consequences of some decisions that we make in this life cannot be undone. By God's grace, we are forgiven. First John 1 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, but there are still consequences in this life to our bad actions. And Jacob is going to see those worked out with Esau. 
Verses 39 to 40, continuing on, Isaac gives Esau the only blessing that he has left. And actually, it's not a blessing at all, but it's more like a curse, the opposite of what he has given to Jacob. Esau will be away from abundance of possessions and wealth. He will be living by the sword at war without peace. He will be serving his brother Jacob. And how does Esau respond? It's not too surprising. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You're in a dark place when you find comfort in dreaming about the pain of another person. And that's where Esau was after this deception. The story wraps up in verses 42 to 46. Just like the beginning of the story, Rebecca overhears this plot. She goes to Jacob and tells him what she has heard and what he needs to do. She tells him to run away to her brother's, his uncle's home until Esau's anger passes. She sends him off with just one curious desire. She says, don't marry someone like Esau's wives, the Hittites, marry someone like me, which is great from the story that we've seen. And that is how the story ends. Jacob is fleeing from his home for fear of his murderous brother. Esau is seething with anger and desires to murder his twin. Jacob ends up being away from home for 20 years, and from what we know, his mom actually never sees him again. Failure to trust God has led to immeasurable relationship pain and division in this family. When we don't trust God, we bring pain into our lives and the lives of those around us. How many relationships, how many friendships have been torn apart by people making selfish and sinful decisions? Maybe you have been the victim or maybe you have been the villain. Uh, Oftentimes, and in reality, all of us have been both. How many marriages, families, businesses, churches have been torn apart because people didn't trust God, acted shamefully to get what they wanted, and then invited pain into their lives and the lives of those around them? You see here in this story, Jacob and Isaac both did not trust God. Both Jacob and Isaac did not trust God, but they actually did not trust God in two different ways. You see, Isaac, he knew God's word. Esau will serve Jacob. And he did not want God's word to happen. Isaac actively fought against God's plan. He didn't trust God. Jacob knew God's word also. Esau will serve Jacob. And he didn't believe God and didn't trust God in a different way. He didn't trust that God would actually make it happen. Jacob didn't fight against God's word like Isaac did. He didn't trust God in a different way. He actually tried to take God's plan into his own hands. He did not trust God either. We might say it this way. Isaac didn't trust that God's plan was good. Jacob didn't trust that God's plan would come. All right, regardless of the way in which you don't trust God and we all have areas in our lives, the outcome will always be the same. And the progression goes like this. First, we don't trust God. That's the starting point. Second, we act shamefully to get what we want out of the mistrust of God. And third, we bring pain into our lives and the lives of those around us. Right, this is not the first time this has happened uh, in this family, actually. Do you remember the story about Abraham and Hagar? Remember the story? Uh, the, Abraham is actually Isaac's dad and Jacob's granddad. And what happened in Abraham's life? Well, Abraham started by not trusting God. God had promised to give him a child, a baby to him and his wife in their old age, but he looked at the circumstances, he didn't trust God. He saw that Sarah was barren and well past childbearing years. He did not trust God, that's where it started. But then he went to step two. 
Abraham took one of his wife's servants and slept with her to have a baby, right? He acted shamefully to get what he wanted. And third, not surprisingly, their marriage and family was filled with bitterness and strife because of having a baby with another woman. But this isn't just a Jacob and Isaac and Abraham thing. We do this all the time in our lives today. We fail to trust God with something we desire. We act shamefully taking access to that thing into our own hands to get it. And then we bring pain into our lives and the lives of those around us. We all have an area right now where we desire something and we're really struggling to trust God. And we need to beware of that progression in our lives. And what I want you to hear uh, from walking through this is really getting to the root problem of their issues and our issues. You see, the biggest problem in your life is not the pain and the difficulty that you are in the midst of, right? The biggest problem is not even the behavior that got you there or the behavior of someone else that got you there. The root problem that this story brings out for us and shows us that is our root problem today is that we don't trust God. When we don't trust God, these issues, these pains, these bad decisions flow out of that. So we actually need to deal with the heart problem. When we don't trust God, we bring pain into our lives and the lives of those around us. And in this story, there is not much hope at all. In Genesis 27 itself, we do not see many positive pictures of how God is moving and working. It's more just a big warning like I've shared with you so far. And again, that's because the Bible is an incredibly honest book, lots of sin, lots of brokenness and lots of pain. But even, even in a chapter like this, we see hints of God's hand moving. We see uh, little reasons that we can pick out of, of why God is trustworthy. It's true that when we don't trust God, we bring pain into our lives, but the opposite is also true as well. When we do trust God, we invite his healing and restoration into our lives and our relationships. So the question that we need to look at is not how do we be better or how do we just get over our pain, but it's actually getting to the core and the heart of the issue. How do we trust God? Right? How do we avoid the error of Isaac and of Jacob of not trusting God and just starting to seize things and take them ourselves? How do we trust God? And what we do is uh, we grow to trust God with the things we really want. We grow to do that. We grow that. We grow to trust God rather than taking those things into our own hands when we are convinced that he will take care of us. All right, you will trust God with the important, heavy, weighty desires of your life when you trust that God will take care of you. How do we, when we have just one life, when there's these desires that we really want, how do we resist the urge to take control ourselves and to act shamefully to get those things? We have to be convinced that God will take care of us. And what better place to look to be convinced of this reality than the truth of God that just jumps off the pages of Jacob's life? And it's this. God saves the undeserving, all right? God saves the undeserving. In this story, because of this story, God has every reason to leave Isaac and Jacob in the dust, right? They did not trust him and he could go find someone, a new family who would. Isaac did not deserve to be a part of God's special family. He tried to pass the blessing to Esau when God said to give it to Jacob. Jacob didn't deserve it either. God said the blessing would come to him, but rather than trusting God, he took it into his own hands, used sin and manipulation to get it, and he broke his family. Jacob did not deserve it either, but God welcomed him. From the very beginning, continuing with Isaac and Jacob and all the way to us today, God saves the undeserving. 
Our Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation and works are completely separated from one another, completely. God only saves the undeserving because it is the only kind of people that exist. You know who wrote that verse about uh, God saving us by grace apart from our works is a guy named Saul. Saul was around at the time of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and he was also still around at kind of the early growth and the explosive nature of uh, the church, just growing and tons of people coming to believe in Jesus. And Saul's job was actually uh, to oppose the growth of the church. He threw Christians in prison, and in fact, he approved of a mob murder of one of the early leaders and preachers in the church. If anyone was undeserving of being saved, of knowing God, of being accepted by God, it was Saul. But if you've been around church for a while, you know the story. On the road to Damascus, while Saul was actually on his way to imprison Christians there, not while he was on a journey, a spiritual journey to find Jesus, Jesus knocked Saul off his horse, he blinded his physical eyes, and he opened his spiritual eyes. He gave, them the gift, he gave Saul the gift of faith to trust in Jesus. God saved Saul, the most undeserving. Saul changed his name to Paul, and he would go on to write most of the New Testament. Paul, in fact, will write a couple of other verses that really get home on this point. Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was undeserving, Paul was. We are undeserving. You are not too far gone for God to save. God saves the undeserving because that is the only kind of person there is. Romans 8.32, another verse by Paul, now it goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave us Jesus, won't he give us everything else? This verse is simple, it's saying this, if God saved us at our undeserving worst, we can trust him with the rest. If God saved us when we didn't deserve it, when we were his enemies, when we were on the way to Damascus to throw Christians in prisons, that's when he saved us, then we can trust him with the rest of our lives. If we can trust God with our lives, we can take our hands off and follow him. God is gracious. God saves the undeserving. God did not spare his own son. He will give you, he will give us everything we need. That means we can trust him. We can trust him with everything. If you aren't a Christian uh, here today, I want you to hear this uh, specifically, as well as everyone in this room. But this story is actually not the only time in the Bible where there was a mix-up of a blessing. You see, Jacob, though he didn't deserve God's blessing, Jacob went and stole it. The blessing was mixed up. Jesus, though fully deserving to receive God's blessing forever because of a perfect and sinless life swapped in the other direction. You see, Jesus is the anti-Jacob. Rather than stealing a blessing for himself, Jesus stole the curse from you and me. In love for you and me, Jesus went and took the wrath of God on sin and took it on himself. Jesus went to live the perfect life that we cannot live. We sin, we fall short. But in the great exchange, Jesus took that penalty so that we could have his life. Jesus in our place. This story is not the only time a blessing was switched, but Jesus did it at the cross. 
This is the heart of the Christian faith. Anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the Savior will be saved. Come to him today. If you trust in Christ, we would love to talk with you after the service. Come down front. We'd love to pray with you and help you get established in your walk with Jesus. And if you are a Christian today, you've received Jesus, you trust him with your life, but oftentimes it's easier to trust God with our eternal life rather than trusting him with our day-to-day, right? We give him uh, ourselves, we receive his forgiveness, but then we have those desires that pop up, like Isaac, like Jacob. And rather than trusting him, we fall back into our old ways, right? We don't trust God. We act shamefully to get what we want. We bring pain into our lives, even though we have a God who's trustworthy. So what I wanna remind you is that God still saves the undeserving. God is still here to save you from whatever you're walking into that might be going down a bad path of hurt and of sin. You don't need to keep it all together for Jesus to remain pleased with you, right? Why does God love you? It's this, the only right answer. God loves you because he chose to love you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. In his wisdom and goodness and mercy and grace, God set his love on you by his sovereign choice. And the Bible promises that he will not ever lose you. God does not love you because of what you did. God does not love you because of what you do. God loves you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It was true at the start of your relationship with him and it is still true today. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are safe with God. He's not leaving you. He did it with Jacob. He did it with Paul. He promises it throughout the Bible. He will do it with you. What does that mean? You can trust him. You can trust him with eternal life and you can trust him with tomorrow. When you don't trust God, you bring pain into your life and the lives of those around you. But when you trust Jesus, the one who stole your curse so that you could receive blessing, you can entrust even your greatest desires into his loving and nail-scarred hands. Go ahead and bow your heads with me as we take a moment to reflect and pray. Just think about this question. Where are you right now trying to take something rather than trusting God? In your life right now, where are you trying to take something rather than trusting God? In prayer, on your own, confess that to him. Turn from that and tell God you trust him. Take a couple of minutes to do that now.